Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Bethany Collins. Born in Montgomery, Alabama, she lives and works in Chicago. She received an MFA from Georgia State University and a BA from the University of Alabama. Bethany is a multidisciplinary artist who explores the intersection of language and race. Her conceptually driven work is fueled by a critical exploration of how race and language interact. Her solo exhibitions include Recently closed on June 15th, Angela Davis sees the time at Rutgers University. The show will travel to the Oakland Museum of California in the fall. A Midnight Thing just opened on June 15th at the Soco Gallery in Charlotte, North Carolina. Bethany is also in a group show titled Language Between Worlds, which will open at Hyde Park Art Center in Chicago on July 16th. Additional solo exhibitions have included Cadence, Patron Gallery, Chicago, America, a hymnal, Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, Arkansas, Evansong at the Frist Art Museum, Nashville, My Destiny is in Your Hands at the Montgomery Museum of Fine Arts, Montgomery, Alabama. Group exhibitions include The Dirty South, Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, Richmond, Virginia, and the Contemporary Arts Museum, Houston, Texas. Jacob Lawrence, The American Struggle, Counter Mythologies, Next Haven, Connecticut, Young, Gifted, and Black, the Lumpkin Boncuzzi Family Collection of Contemporary Art, Solidary and Solitary, the Joyner Jufrida Collection, the Smart Museum of Art in Chicago, to name a few from a very long list. Bethany's work is included in the public collections at the St. Louis Art Museum, St. Louis, Missouri, the Morgan Library and Museum in New York, the Block Museum of Art, Northwestern University, Chicago, High Museum of Art, Atlanta, Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, Philadelphia, the Student Museum in Harlem, Yale University Library, to name a very few. Bethany has won numerous awards and has been featured in several publications. Numerous essays provide layered insights into her very interesting and profound thought-provoking practice. Please visit CerebralWomen.com to read her expanded bio and links to various articles about Bethany Collins. Enjoy this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast.
Bethany, welcome to my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I am delighted to feature you. Thank you for having me. When did you discover your artistic passion? I had an uncle who really liked to draw, and I think he bought me, you know what? I, he had one of those... Um, one of those old books where it would have a t- like a hundred ink drawings of Victorian chairs or whatever the theme of the book was. I don't know if you remember those a hundred ink drawings or watercolors of some bird type. It was, you know, very specific kind of niche books. And I copied kind of looked at the drawing of the chair and was able to recreate it. And I remember he was mm, impressed and a little there was like a tinge of jealousy on his face when he looked at my drawing too. And I was like, oh, well, if I can do that, that's, you know, I like being good at things. So that was probably the first time I thought, oh, I can, there's something here I could do. Do you recall if there was a particular artist that influenced your practice, how you approached art early on? Mm, Early on, not as much. I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. And so my mom would take us to the Montgomery Museum of Fine Arts a lot And there was, at least at the time, a kind of heavy, heavy showing of Alabama-based artists, Southern artists who are often, or at least what they were, what the museum was showing was folk artists, craft-based kind of practices. And so that's what we saw quite a lot of. And I didn't see a lot of conceptual work until, you know, a little bit in undergrad, but probably mostly grad school. Define your practice. It's conceptual. It's language-based. So, and I think of it as minimal, but maybe post-minimal because it has a lot of uh, tactility to it and emotion and expression are built into the work. And so it's not strictly, it's, you know, the work is not boiled down to its most essential form, but I try to get it as close as I can. Language is the subject of my entire practice. It's also the material that I'm working with a lot. So encyclopedias, outdated dictionaries, old newspaper archives, sign microfiche, any of those kind of archives of language of a time is usually where I begin the work. What inspired that creativity? I Hard to say. My, uh, both of my parents are really creative. Uh, my dad can fix anything. Even so I'm in Chicago now. He's uh, my parents are still in Alabama. So even from a many mild distance, you can call him on the phone and tell him a problem. Like my door handle fell off last week and he can fix it. And if he can't fix it, he'll YouTube it and then let you know how to fix it. Um, and my mom has always been a painter and really creative. There was never a time that we were bored and she was not thinking of a, a game on the spot for us to play to keep us from whining too much. She's a very creative woman. In your work, how are your memories reflected? I think in the early work was the early work was much more personal. So the white noise series, the Southern review series, I was trying to work out my own questions around racial identity being grown up in a multiracial family in Alabama. And so the white noise series was personal because I was pulling language initially from critique settings that my grad school peers were saying about my work and then repeating that language, which always had some sort of problem in it. For instance, I made a paper bag piece that was about colorism within the black community. And the critique I got was, well, maybe if you make the paper bag into a slave ship, then I would get that it's about race. Or don't you think your work is a little elitist because I don't know that history? And so in order not to make a hundred little slave ships in order to be understood 
or for the work to be understood. I started to repeat that language, write it over and over and over again to obsess on it, physically obsess on it and physically deconstruct it until it became illegible. It was loosed from its origins. And then it also became something more beautiful in that, in that process of obsession, it transformed or transcended the original problem within the text. So that early work was very personal, the language and my, my handling of the language. I think more recently, though, I'm less interested in mining my own memories. I'm much more interested in our kind of collective archives of language and what they can tell us about what we value or what we don't value at any given moment in time. Is there one body of work that you feel your audience connects with the most or understands it the most? I think that white noise series is probably that body of work and the tentacles of it or the threads of it still continue in my whole practice. So obsessing on something, creating this very labor intensive process in order to break it down and transform it, that the residue of language is never fully erasable. It's never fully gotten rid of. It's always present. You know, starting with a problem in the text or something's missing in the text, it's not quite right. And being able to transform that into something more beautiful, like those threads continue, even though that white noise series has ended. How do you keep learning? I'm working on a new body of work for next year for a commission at Bryn Mawr College. And so I went and spent a week in residence and just listened to people tell me about their about the college, about their their areas of interest and research, about their experience of being in that space. And then what I'd, I'm thinking that I'd like to do some sort of performance work. And so I'm reading about shape note singing, which I've worked with before, but haven't, uh, I want to do some more research into it. So I'm reading Traveling Home, Sacred Harp Singing and American Pluralism. And then I'm reading about the destruction of monuments and um, Imani Perry's South to America. Like I have, um, I have an idea, just an inkling of something that I want to do, but I need to be able to back it up. And so I, I read because I have to back my, back up my, my, my desire to make something. As a multidisciplinary artist, what aspect of your practice do you enjoy the most? You know, as a as a language, I think of my work as like language-based. It is all language-based, but for someone who loves language, I hate writing. And I also hate not knowing what I'm working on next. So the research part is usually the most difficult for me. The part that I love is just the making. It's like the work is done. The idea is fully formed. There may be a couple of surprises, but I know what I'm doing when I walk in the studio those are the days that I love the most. It's just labor at that point, because the idea is the work. The research is the work to me. And then I also think of my practice as primarily drawing. There are artist books, there will be sculptures, there's been performances, but there is something to me that is still, they're all inherently connected back to drawing, even so. If you weren't a visual artist, what other career would you have chosen? I think I'd be an editor. I'd be a really good editor because not a writer, but I could edit other people's language really well. And I would also love to be a landscape architect. I think I could do that really well. Both of those are very solitary, <laughs> solitary professions. I think there's a lot of quiet time. 
similar to my studio practice. Yeah. How would you define black art? Anything that we make. It's kind of similar to, um, I used to get this question about like, how does it feel to be a Southern artist when I moved to New York? Actually, this is not similar because I've never thought of myself as a Southern artist, but I am a black artist. But that question of like, what is it, what does it mean to, when does it become Southern art? Is there some sort of thematic or visual formal element that ties all Southern art together? It's a difficult question. It's work that a Southern, a person from the South has made Southern art. I'm sure there are that art historians would tell you there are thematic elements and conceptual and formal and visual elements that, that you could, you could start to link them together at least in it in in the foundation of them, but essentially it's work that Southern people make, people from the South make, and Black art is work that Black artists have made. Has your practice changed much over the years? I think lately it has since the 2016 election. The work got much less personally forward. If that's the right phrase. Since the 2016 election, or one of the first works I made after the election was a, a hymnal that consists of a hundred versions of my country tis of thee that are written from the 18th to 20th centuries. So this used to be a much more common early American practice where lyricists, yeah, I mean, sometimes just regular folks would take the melody of a really well-known song because, okay, the assumption is we'll all know the tune and then I can rewrite the lyrics without having to publish the tune. So it's economical or I can give out the new lyrics in a kind of call and response and we can learn it that way. The tune is familiar and known. And then I can rewrite the lyrics to my country, Tis of Thee, The Star Spangled Banner, Battle Hymn of the Republic in support of all these very political social causes. So the first hymnal that I made is a hundred versions of my country, Tis of Thee, that were rewritten for suffrage, temperance, prohibition, tons of those. Native sovereignty, revolution, the Confederacy has their versions of my country, Tis of Thee, so do abolitionists and the Union. And so together they're kind of there are a hundred dissenting versions of what it means to be American forever bound together. They cannot escape one another. But I also burned away the, the melody, the staff lines and the musical notation so that what's holding them together in unity is gone by the end of the text. And all you're left with is the dissension. And that felt very much like a way to respond to that post-2016 election moment. When something is familiar, the tune, but also this place is simultaneously estranging. Something has shifted here. There's no way to make those hundred versions align again. When you're working, do you listen to music? Mm -mm. I listen to NPR or podcasts. It's helpful for me to hear people talking, actually, versus music. When I was at Studio Museum, Abigail DeVille was on one side of my studio and Kevin Beasley was on the other. Kevin works with sound and sometimes musical sound. And so whenever he played music, I would start, you know, I'm, I'm in my studio, like obsessively rewriting something, some text. And whenever he would play music, I would start writing whatever was coming out of his studio space. So I, something about music is, um, it sets the, the mood for the studio, for my studio, but it, it is, is, for some reason, it's distracting to me. I like to hear people talking in order to be making. Explain to us what inspires you or what overcomes you when you're creating a, a sound installation. What, what is that process like? 
The first performance, sound performance that I did was in Miami at Locust Projects. And I had invited, I did a kind of open call. Anyone can come and sing from the hymnal, America hymnal. That's the hundred versions of my country tis of thee in, in one in one artist book. Anyone can come and sing from the hymnal for 30 minutes and we'll do this kind of endurance singing over the course of the day. The work was based on, so I grew up in Alabama in a Presbyterian church. It's a very progressive Presbyterian church. And we used to do these 48-hour, 72-hour Bible readings. People still do this with the Odyssey today. But you would sign up for your hour, day or night, show up at 3 a.m. and read from the text. You hope it's not Job or Leviticus. And you hope that someone comes at 4 a.m. to relieve you from your post. Usually there was nobody in the pew, but the the lovely idea to me that still resonates in this moment is that even when no one is listening, there are texts that are still worthy of being read back into the world, or there are songs that are still worthy of being sung back into the world. So that was the idea behind this open call durational, I think it was eight hour singing of a hundred versions of My Country Tis of Thee. To answer your question, though, some of those singings were beautiful. They were reminders of it's kind of like a chronological retelling of American history through one song. Like, can you cover everything in a broad brush over eight hours? Can you tell us the whole story and make it really accurate? And some of those singings were beautiful. Not all of them, though. There was one singer who was terrible, and I think she did it on purpose to bother me. Oh, it was so excruciating to listen to. And I don't even think she was singing the same tune. (laughs) I just think she was messing with me. But at the end, I had to leave the space because it was making me so uncomfortable for an artist who likes to keep a tight control over their, their practice and the work and how it's experienced and shown in the world made me super uncomfortable. But then I realized, I mean, I think a friend, a curator friend, Leah Newman probably said that was the good stuff. Like it can't always sound great or it's not an accurate presentation of democracy. And especially in this moment, sometimes it has to sound terrible. That was a a long-winded way of answering your question of like, what does it feel like to live within that or to present those sound works? Sometimes it's beautiful and sometimes it's really terrible. What are you excited about now? I'm working on a project next year. So a couple of projects that I think are going to be related. Um, The one is for Bryn Mawr that I think will be shape note based. So that is also the form of the first hymnal and the first performance was um, kind of related to shape note singing or sacred harp singing. It's um, a form of singing or musical notation that starts in the colonies, but it's primarily still popular in the American South today. The notes are actually shaped. So they are circles and squares and rectangles and triangles, et cetera. Sometimes they work up to seven notes, uh, seven, seven shapes. It can get really complicated, but it's actually supposed to be a much easier way to learn music. And sacred harp singers tend to sit in a hollow square. So they face one another and sit with their vocal range. So all the tenors will sit together, altos together. There's no leader. Everyone takes a turn no instruments. It is just your voices and just one another. There was a New York Times article about it. They called it like like heavy metal sacred music. There's like a yelling kind of form to it, but beautiful at the same time. So I want to, I've been working with that kind of, um, the performances have always had a relationship to sacred harp singing, but I want to actually work with a sacred harp choir next year. 
And then I also want to continue this um, examine kind of investigation of floriography, just the language of flowers. Floriography, it doesn't start in Victorian England, but it kind of has a resurgence in the 19th century Victorian England. And then at the turn of the 20th century, there's at least like 98 flower dictionaries in circulation in the U.S. And today we think of, you know, you send yellow roses because you only want to be friends, like really simple floral translations. But these dictionaries were, I mean, they were Victorian. They're super romantic and melodramatic. Up to now, I've been translating the state flowers of the American South. So for instance, I'm from Alabama. Alabama state flowers, the camellia, it means my destiny is in your hands. Louisiana's iris, I think, means I am your captive. Delaware's peach blossom, I burn for you. And so this language, you know, translating the the kind of landscape or the, the floral imagery of the South through this lens of the 19th century dictionaries, it feels as though those dictionaries are speaking also to the history of the South. My destiny is in your hands. I burned for you. I am your captive. Welcome me. Let me go. It's telling again, same as the hymnal, the history of the South. It is beautiful and it is terrible always at the same time. you recall what inspired you to research flowers, especially during that period of time? I heard someone on NPR say that in times of crisis, we turn towards home. And if we can't like turn physically, if we can't go home, then at least our minds turn towards home. And I think that's when I started thinking about Alabama again with some kind of longing that was surprising to me. I still have a lot of family there, but I don't feel as though it's a place where I can, you know, I moved to Chicago because it can sustain my art practice. It doesn't feel like a place that I can go back to and have the same kind of practice. And yet I feel some sort of longing to be there at the same time. Every once in a while, I get to go back and make a project in the South and it reminds me of why I'm working. Yeah. And so I was thinking about home and belonging and like, can the landscape tell you the history of a place? It is beautiful. And it is, and there are places that are, that retain the history of what happened there and they're charged in a way. Yeah. Thinking about home quite a lot these days. It's been a great conversation. This is our last question. And that is, what do you feel is the purpose of art and and what is your role? For me, art is an opportunity to uh, resolve something in the world, especially when it comes to language. There's always some sort of problem in the text, problem in the archive, or how we understand ourselves in history. And the work is an opportunity to, to reveal the problem and maybe to transform it into something more accurate and potentially more beautiful. That's my general approach. I mean, and the work then is always, it sounds selfish, but the work is always for me. I don't understand something about the world and the work, doing the work, the research, the the meticulous, the labor of making is always the chance. It might fail, but it's the chance to solve something that, that never made sense to begin with. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining oh, me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.